Hi folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the Kingdom of God. This is episode 92 of the Jesus Society Podcast, and um, I have uh, got something, I think, important that I want to talk about today, but, 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 before I do that, um, I want to make a bit of an announcement and um, to cut to the chase, I am writing a book. Um, this has been something I've been thinking about and praying about for a long, long time, um, a number of years, actually. Um, I, I knew, I've known for a while that I, or I felt like I needed to write a book. I've, I've had this nug, uh, nudge um, tug on my heart that I, I think um, God wants me to write a book. Um, but I, as I've been thinking about it, it has, uh, I've had a little bit of a, a, a problem kind of organizing it in my mind, right? Um, it's taken a number of twists and turns in my, in my thinking, which if you know me personally, that won't surprise you a bit. I generally tend to think things through, things through for a long, long, long time uh, before I act. I want to. I want to have a. I want to have a plan in place that I feel confident about before I just jump right in. Um, that's just the way. That's just the way I am. Um, I have. I have on occasion been accused of um, getting paralysis from analysis. So that just tells you what kind of person I am sometimes. Um, what a what a good book needs, obviously, first and foremost is focus, and that's what I feel like I didn't have in all this. There there were lots of things that I wanted to say, but I couldn't. You know, obviously, um, I'm I'm 57 years old, and I've lived a lot of life at this point, and I've learned a lot of things, and I've seen a lot of things in terms of ministry and the kingdom and the church and, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I can't, this can't just be a, a brain dump of everything I've, everything I think and everything I see, I've seen and heard. Um, figuring out how to, how to sift and sort that all and which bits to leave out and which bits to include, include in order to have a, a coherent and, and focused book. That's been something that has eluded me. However, over the last couple of weeks, um, some things have come together rather dramatically and have coalesced in my thinking that have now given me the clearest vision that I've had of what this book needs to be. Uh, I think I think um, this can be something very, very, very significant and useful to a whole bunch of people. Um, I... I feel, and at great risk of trying to oversell this thing, um, I feel like this could be one of the most important things I do in my life um, to leave uh, behind whenever I'm not in this life anymore. Um, and I've gotten some real clarity about that over the last couple of weeks. I, I feel like, um, I, f I don't feel like it's a stretch to say, I feel like God has finally helped me. We've got a plane flying overhead which you will probably hear. Um, I feel like God has given me the green light for this, finally. He has um, 
gotten me to where I need to be to where I can write something useful. And um, so some th- some things have coalesced and fueled and inspired by that newfound clarity. Um, the other day in a, in a kind of a flurry of, of writing, I sketched out the big pieces of the book in about 20 minutes. And I've got to say, I'm pretty pleased with with the big the big rocks um, that I'm going to need to move in writing this book and the way that they at least initially seem to flow. Now, my friends who have written books tell me that the final book, when it finally gets to publication, it may only resemble the initial concept, concept tangentially. <laughs> uh, the writing process is a process that often alters the direction of the book itself. So I, I'm, I'm aware of that and I know that. And so we'll see how this all shakes out by the time it's it's done. But I feel really good. I, I feel good enough about my idea for this book that I feel like I can start it and and work on it. There's some things that I've already written uh, over the years that will be incorporated and edited and, and put into this, but there'll be a lot of new stuff too. Um, I, I'm excited about this. I'm very excited, and I think I'm focused enough to begin writing and, and trying to bring the uh, the wandering, un, untamed strands of my thought into the barn, so to speak. So I say all that. One of the reasons I'm making this announcement is because this is this is going to take a lot of my time, and so um, I just want to say to everybody, I am I will be taking a break from the podcast um, after today uh, to focus on writing. Um, I my hope and intention is that writing this book will bring a whole fresh new dimension to the podcast after I return. I realize I'm not yet to episode 100, which I would really have liked to have been um, before I before I took a pause, but um, we, we may end up with a, with a good 100th episode when I get there after this is all done. Um, and I know you would all like an advanced teaser of what the book will be, but I'm not ready to share that just yet. Um, suffice it to say that it will include some some familiar themes for longtime listeners of the podcast with some new stuff, hopefully all with renewed clarity and focus and relevance. And I very much hope that this book will be a useful resource for Bible classes, small groups, uh, coffee shop discipleship groups, much like much like what I do most of the time. Um, that's that's largely my ministry. Um, I I hope this will be a resource that will really bring people not only just closer to God, but help people um, become more like Jesus in the way that we, in in terms of our confidence, in terms of our joy, um, in terms of uh, unlocking some of the fruit of the Spirit things that I think for a lot of us seem to elude us. Anyway, I this is my hope and my prayer. I would, I would very much, I would very much covet your prayers for this um, as I write. Um, it, it would mean an awful lot to me if those of you, particularly those of you who listen to this regularly, if you would just lift me up in prayer uh, and lift this book up in prayer over the next several months um, as what I hope God and I together bring this bring this about. That would mean an awful lot uh, to me.
So with that said, today I want to talk about how God views us. My, my sense after having talked to lots and lots of people um, over the last, predominantly the last five or five or six years, is that there are many, many, many people out there who who still imagine, even in this age where we all supposedly understand grace, there are many, many, many people that still imagine that God is peering down at us over the bridge of his spectacles, largely disappointed with how we're living up to his standards and wishing that we'd all just try a little harder and do a little bit better. Um, and some people are living in despair because they feel like they're not measuring up. I have some things to say about all that. So stick around and let's see what we can make of this. Okay, so um, coffee. First of all, coffee. Maybe when I come back, I will have found a coffee sponsor for this show. Okay, so one of the things that has that has got me thinking about this. Um, one of the things, and I I, I want to be careful how I talk about this because I don't want to sound I don't want to sound critical. I I know with this subject. My son tells me that I can be awful critical, and I don't, I don't intend to be that. But I have been listening to a good bit of contemporary Christian music lately. Um, frankly, I don't usually listen to a lot of contemporary Christian music, and at great risk of offending people, that is so because, first, I don't really care for pop music, and most contemporary Christian music is in the vein of pop music, so, so in part, it's a stylistic thing for me. Um, that's not to say I don't like all pop music. There's some pop music that I really do like, but a lot of it is just I don't like. Um, the second reason that I, I don't tend to listen to a lot of contemporary Christian music is that because I find that a lot of it, certainly not all of it, okay, certainly not all of it, but a lot of it tends to be pretty shallow. And I would even go so far as to say theologically questionable. Um, one of my friends jokingly calls a lot of these songs 7-Eleven songs because they sing the same seven words 11 times. Um, and that's funny. Um, but if you listen to a lot of particularly worship songs, right, uh, you'll realize that that's sometimes true. Uh, now, to be fair, I think there's some older hymns that might fall into the the, the, the category of Maybe not quite so much 7-Eleven songs, but um, things that are theologically questionable. There's some old hymns that fall into that category, too. Uh, so I'm not just beating up on contemporary Christian music. And I don't, I don't really want to be, I don't really want to be beating up on anything. I'm just saying that I don't listen to a lot of it. And I will also say, um, just in order to be fair and try to deflect a little of the heat that I can already feel coming at me, I'll also say that there are some very, very, very good contemporary Christian songs out there. However, and this gets us back to where I started, when you listen to a lot of contemporary Christian music, uh, 
which includes a lot of modern worship music, at least some of the stuff I've been listening to lately. What, what I have heard is a lot of songs that collectively seem to paint a picture of being sung by people who are mired in guilt and fear and shame and who are desperately hoping that God can pull them out of the muck and the mire of all that. And, of course, I would say we don't even need to look at music to see that. Um, if you talk to just about any counselor today, they will tell you that guilt and shame and feelings that I'm not good enough are absolutely rampant, particularly in the under, I'll say under 40 crowd, maybe under 30 crowd, right? Um um, I, I think I, I didn't I didn't talk to my son about saying this, but I think he I think it, it, it's true um, that he would say, I think, for a lot of his 20 something peers, that's that's kind of true. Um, and I hope I have permission to say that um, if he doesn't want me to have said that he can edit this because he's my editor and he can cut that out. But it's a this is a real thing. It's a real thing. And I want to address kind of the, the space a lot of Christians are leaving at, living in feeling like they're not good enough and that God is perpetually displeased with them. Okay, that's the, that's the genesis here of where I want to go. Now, another sip of coffee. Um, the reason I think a lot of people feel that way, I, th I think there's two sources for, for all of that um, guilt and fear and shame. The first is that we live in the Western world. And honestly, uh, we, live in a, we live in a culture, and it's gotten more that way, that, is, that tends to be harsh and critical and, and often um, at least verbally uh, oppressive. There are thought police like there have never been thought police and if you think or say or, or dress or act like whatever, there's going to be a ton of people that are going to criticize you for it. We're, we're a critical people. And I say that even though I just offered some criticism against a lot of contemporary Christian music and maybe I'm part of the problem. I think it's just it's in the air we breathe in, in the West. But that, for one thing, has made us all feel like we're not measuring up, that we're not, that we're all alone, that we're not enough, um, that the things we've done are things no one else has done. Um, you know, we're, we're utterly alone. And that those things have just become part of who we are and there's no escaping that. We're, we're stuck. I think a lot of us have spent time in that space. And there are, there are powerful forces in our culture that are just cultivating that kind of mentality. Uh, advertising, social media, the, the politicization of, of um, politicization, is that right? However you say that. Uh, of, uh, you know, everything is, is politicized today. Um, th those are just a few of the things that I think conspire in our culture to force us all into that shell-shocked kind of mentality where we we th we think about everything before we say it because we're, we don't want to be criticized, right? Cancel culture. We, we live in a... You can get canceled for anything, right? Okay, the second source, I, I think, for, for the view of all that 
especially among people with a Christian background, um, or, or maybe I should say the lie that a lot of people with Christian backgrounds seem to believe, is that for some reason they've gone beyond the reach of God's love and forgiveness. Um, we've we've failed too much. We continue to screw up even after we promise God that we're done and we're not going to screw up anymore. And that until we find a way to straighten ourselves out, we're just not worthy of God. I, I, I think there's a lot of Christians who think that way. And frankly, I think all of this stuff, I think young girls, I think sometimes suffer more from that than anybody. Okay. The bottom line is that our thinking is really twisted up about a lot of this, and we need to get that sorted out. And, and here's the thing. According to Galatians 5, 19 through 23, what the Spirit of God produces in his people and thus in the world is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And what I want to say is that if you see or hear or feel anything in the world around you or even in the church that doesn't look like those things, guess what? Those That is not coming from God. If you see discord or hatred or strife or criticism or negativity, that's not coming from God. Okay? So all of that leads us, I think, to the tremendous need for a proper view of ourselves and of the God who created us. So that's what we're going to get into here next. So how do we sort through all this and come to a thoroughly biblical picture of who we are and how God sees us, and hopefully then start to live in a reality that takes our failings seriously while allowing us to live in peace and joy and hope. We need to start with a, a biblical understanding of who God is, okay? A lot of people have a, some grossly misunderstood concepts of, of who God is. The New Testament insists over and over and over again, that we only really understand God in his fullness through Jesus. When we see Jesus, we see God, okay? The New Testament insists that. Um, John tells us in John chapter 118 that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. In other words, Jesus has shown us in himself who God is. I've heard a lot of people over the years say, I don't, I don't like God, but I really kind of like that Jesus guy. Well, if you, if you like Jesus, you like God because Jesus is the full representation of God. Okay, um, Jesus has shown us in himself who God is. In John chapter 14, Verses 8 through 11, Philip asks the question that I think we're all asking. He says to Jesus, Lord, just show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus' response tells us the same thing that we saw in John 1.18. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you don't know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. 
I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The affirmation at the center of the Christian faith is that we only really understand who God is and what kind of God he is when we see Jesus fully and completely. We see God and understand his ways only through looking at Jesus. That's why we must read the Old Testament in the light of Jesus, okay? So, as a window into understanding how God the Father looks at people who have found themselves mired in their own bad choices, let's look at how Jesus deals with those kind of people, okay? And I would point us initially to two familiar stories, although there's there's a number of others we could look at. The first is in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42, and that's a big chunk of scripture, and we're not going to break this down in detail. We're certainly not going to read it, but I, I would encourage you to read basically all of John chapter 4. The gist of the story is that Jesus comes to a town called Sychar in Samaria, and he meets a woman coming out to draw water uh, from the well in the heat of the day. Now, culturally, you have to understand women didn't normally draw water in the heat of the day for the same reason you wouldn't do it, right? There's a lot of things we don't do when it's hot outside. We do things in the morning or in the evening um, when it's a little cooler, and, and particularly if you got to do a lot of heavy work. Well, drawing water, you know, you're not taking a, you know, a little Nalgene bottle to the well and filling it up and taking it back home. You're taking these big jugs of water that are heavy, and you balance two of them across your shoulders on a pole. It's, it's hard physical work. Women did that work um, for some reasons that we won't, I'm not going to get into all that, but um, you don't do that kind of work in the, in the heat of the day. You do that early in the morning or late in the afternoon um, when it's a little easier. But all the indications, so the question is, why is this woman doing this in the middle of the day? And all the indications are that this woman is coming here in the middle of the day so as to avoid the other women who would be there early in the morning or late in the day. Why? Because she is ashamed of her situation and doesn't want to face those women. And as we read the story, and there's a lot of pieces to this story, we discover that this woman has had five husbands. And and at the time Jesus encounters her there, she's now living with someone who isn't her husband. And in her shame over that, that's that's a bad place to live in in, in that world at that time. She's isolated herself from every other woman in town because of her shame. And yet Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's speaking to you, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water and it will become in you a well of water springing up in you for eternal life. And the point there is that Jesus deals with this woman mired in her guilt and her shame, and he knows all about her situation, right? But he deals with her with tender compassion and love. And if you want to see, not just read it, if you want to see this story visually, I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to watch the last episode of season one of The Chosen, because that's the story that is dramatically enacted there. And it is just beautiful the way that they, the way that they've done that. Um, the second story in Jesus ministry that I, that I'd point us to is, is in John chapter eight, verses three through 11. This is a story of the woman caught in adultery. So 
the Jewish religious leaders bring a woman to Jesus who had been caught in adultery. And the whole thing is a sham, okay? They're doing this to try to trap Jesus, all right? And they're using this woman as a pawn in their in their scheme to trap Jesus. But, but I'm not going to get into all that right now. But they bring this woman to Jesus, and she really has been caught in adultery. I don't think they're making that up. And they say to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of committing adultery. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And again, it's a trap. And Jesus stoops down and draws in the dirt for a few minutes, and they keep pressing him for for some kind of response. And finally, Jesus says, and you know this story probably, he says, the one without sin among you should be the one to first throw a stone at her. And at that, you can almost hear the stones dropping in everybody's hand as they, as they all turn one by one and leave, as they each realize that they don't meet that standard. Now, there's more to that story. But the point is that after all they left, or at least the point I'm making here, Jesus turns to the woman and says, woman, where'd they all go? Isn't anyone left to condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Why? Because God is not a God of condemnation. Okay? Um, But he says, go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. Okay? So again, if you see, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And if this is the way Jesus treats people who have made sinful mistakes, this is the way the Father treats them as well. And we know that even from the Old Testament. Okay? Um, some people have this idea that God is a God, a, a harsh, judgmental God in the Old Testament, and then Jesus is this, you know, kind, gentle, forgiving God. Same God, Old Testament and New. The most consistently repeated description of God in the Old Testament is heard first from the mouth of God himself in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where God says of himself, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. That is God's own self-description. That is the way God chooses to describe himself. And that description is repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament, sometimes with slightly different wording, but always, and, and sometimes in an abbreviated form, but always with the same message. And you'll see it in places like Numbers 14, verse 18, Psalm 86, verse 5, Psalm 103. And you really should just read all of Psalm 103, but a number of other places. It is the most consistently offered description of God in the Old Testament. This is how Israel understood her God. And yes, I know that some of those verses also promise that God will condemn the guilty. But We need to read that carefully, and we need to understand that the guilty in that context are not the same people that God has just promised to forgive, okay? We we tend to think of innocent or guilty, right? That's not the delineation that we see in Scripture all the time, okay? 
the, the people in this context that, that God calls the guilty are chronically, persistently evil people, okay? Now, this leads us to a discussion of sin because we've got to understand sin the way the Bible does, which is not, sadly, the way most of us understand it. Most of us assume that sin is just simply a failure to live up to God's standards of moral purity. God has given us this list of things, uh, a set of rules, and our job, our job is just to, to, to follow those things and live up to those, right? Um, and, and what we really think is that what God demands is perfection, and any failure to be perfect is to sin, and that imperfection angers God greatly. That's the... That's the picture I think almost all of us have in our heads when we think about sin. There are some things about that that are true, but that is an overly simplistic way of viewing something that has a lot of nuance to it, biblically. The fact is that God makes a distinction between people who are loyal to him, flawed and imperfect though they are, and the people who are in open, persistent rebellion to him, who have no loyalty or allegiance to him, and who refuse to submit to his wise, loving rule. And God has always operated that way with people. And we see that, again, in Exodus 34, verse 7, where, again, contextually, forgiving sinners and condemning the guilty, and I'm using air quotes there for both of those words, those are clearly very two different group of pe- groups of people. And the difference is the attitude of the heart. It is a question of allegiance. Which direction are you walking? And in whose light are you walking? And that, of course, brings us to 1 John 1, verses 7 and 8, where John says, If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So the big question here is, what is he talking about when he talks about walking in the light? What does that mean? A lot of people have read this and come away thinking that walking in the light means walking perfectly or walking sinlessly. And I know this because I have talked to a lot of those people over the years, right? This is a passage we have to read carefully and we have to think carefully about as we read it, okay? That, is, that, that picture is not what this means, because if it did mean that, if walking in the light meant perfectly, okay, then that would also mean walking sinlessly, and, there, and if it meant walking sinlessly, there would be no sin for the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from, Right? You see that? And yet John says, if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from sin. So walking in the light cannot mean walking sinlessly or walking perfectly. Walking in the light tells us where we walk. In the light of God's love. Not how we walk. Okay? And it assumes, because God knows us, that there's going to be some sin in our lives. He knows that we are sinners. We have sin in our lives, okay? That's why John says in the next verse that if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Sin is a reality for all of us in a fallen world, and God knows that. 
But there is a vast difference. And, there, and there's, a, there's a lot more I could say about this, but we're, we, I'm trying not to make this a two-hour podcast. Lots of other passages we could look at that bear this out. But there is a vast difference between occasional sin in a life that is otherwise devoted to God and a persistent rebellion to God and a refusal to follow Him in His ways. And God understands that. And we are hopelessly confused by all this, a lot of us, because most of us are operating on a theology of sin that is woefully under, underdeveloped. We are, we are utterly preoccupied with, with perfection. That is an outgrowth of the Reformation, right? We are, and, and the Enlightenment, not just the Reformation, but largely the Enlightenment. We are, we are myopically focused on perfection, we think perfection is the only thing that matters in all this. And that is just not the way the people of the Bible thought about all this stuff, right? Sin, as the Bible talks about it, is not just the failure to keep up some kind of moral standard. And yes, I know the word sin means missing the mark, but what is the mark? It's not moral perfection. That's a, that's a modern thing that we're reading back in the text. The entire history of human life on this planet teaches us that that is an impossible standard. And God knows that. No, the, the mark that sin causes us to miss is living life in allegiance to God and bearing his image to the world. And we're going to do that imperfectly because we are imperfect. We are, we are touched and marred by sin. We are. Sin has left scars on us all. And we, we move through life limping because of that. But that does not mean that we cannot live victoriously, radiantly, and bearing the image of God as earthen vessels, as Paul will say. The point is that God understands our weakness which is exactly what the Hebrew writer says. In Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, the writer talking about Jesus reminds us that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. In other words, he understands temptation and he has sympathy with us even though he himself didn't yield to it as we do. He, he gets it. He understands. Now, that doesn't excuse sin. It doesn't make light of it. It doesn't say that sin doesn't matter. But it does put sin in its proper context. Therefore, the Hebrew writer says, because we know that Jesus understands and sympathizes with us, and because we know he has dealt with our sins so that we are now in Jesus, cleansed and made new. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, not in shame or in guilt or in fear, but in boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The thing about all this that, we've, that, we, that we have to see, and I'm going to wrap up with this, in Paul's writings, 
Paul often described, like this is big, okay? So gird up your loins and pay attention here. This is really, really, really important. This is where this whole talk today has been leading. In Paul's writings, Paul often describes sin. Look at the way Paul describes sin when he describes it. And he describes sin not as moral failure, but as a power that enslaves. Okay? Sin is an active, living power that enslaves those it entices into its grasp. And we see that here in Paul, and we're going to see that in just a minute. But I want to point out that that is the consistent view of sin in the Bible from the very beginning, even in the Old Testament. In fact, the very first time the word sin shows up in the Bible, very early on in the book of Genesis, it is described in exactly that way. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, as God speaks to, to Cain, and you know Cain's about to kill his brother, and God speaks to him before he does, and he says to Cain, he says, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? And then listen to what he says. He says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. You see that? Sin is depicted there by God himself as a predatory force, something that crouches in the darkness just waiting to pounce. It wants you. God says its desire is for you. This is, this is clearly not something that's just about a, fa a failure to follow some rules. There is a war being waged here by a powerful, active, predatory force whose desire is to capture you and hold you in bondage. And Romans 6 is the place in the New Testament where we see that most clearly, although Paul talks about this in other places too. Over and over again in Romans 6, Paul talks about how when we sin, we become a slave to sin and are thus ruled by sin. And you see that in Romans 6, verse 7, verse 12, verse 14, verse 16, verse 17, verse 19, and verse 20. And the clearest of those verses is verse 16, where he says, you just all read, read all the whole of Romans 6. But he says in verse 16, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So when we commit sin, it's not, it's not just that we fail to follow a rule. When we commit sin, we are giving over our power to an enslaving force. We are signing ourselves into slavery to this to this this powerful enslaving predatory force. What the Bible elsewhere refers to as the principalities and powers. And those powers enslave us. They put us in bondage. And then as slaves to those powers, they use us to do their bidding, wreaking carnage and chaos in the part of God's good creation that we inhabit. This is a very, very, very important theological concept, and it's one that we need to really think through. Because a lot of people don't understand. I, I almost would say most people don't understand that. But the flip side, 
And this is where the hope comes in, is that when we surrender to God and give our allegiance to Jesus, we become then slaves of righteousness. And as slaves of righteousness, our new master, Jesus, the King and rightful Lord of the earth, the loving Messiah, uses us then not to sow discord and strife and chaos and evil into the world, but to sow love and peace and hope and joy in the world. And here's the thing, folks. God doesn't hate slaves. God does not hate slaves. God pities them. And he wants very much, very, very much to rescue them because that, that's what love does. Love rescues. And so Paul can say in Romans 6 that God's desire is that we be set free and, 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 and are no longer enslaved to sin. He just doesn't want at all for death to rule over us. So does God hate us wretched sinners? No. He loves us because he recognizes that we're enslaved. We're in bondage. And if we're slaves to sin, he very much wants to set us free. And if you're a Christian, you have been set free. And learning to live in that reality and not continuing to beat yourself up over the ways you're not perfect, that's the way to freedom. Because think about it. If you're like me, and I'm, I'm sure you're like me, if you're constantly keeping your eyes on all the ways in which you don't live up to whatever moral standard you think God wants you to live up to, if that's the thing you focus on day in and day out, over and over and over again, I'm, I'm, I, I keep screwing up, I keep screwing up, I keep screwing up. What happens to your resolve after just a short time of that? It evaporates like a mist, doesn't it? You, you just lose the will to try. You, you think, I just keep screwing up. I can't get it right. God just is losing patience with me. And I have been there, right? And pretty soon you think, what's the point? I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to get it right. Why try? Right? You understand what that feels like? I do. That's where a lot of Christians are living because we don't understand that we have been set free. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're perfect. That was the trap I got into very early in my Christian walk. I knew I'd been set free and so I expected that from here on out, because I've repented and God forgave me, I ought to be able to live perfectly. And after literally just a few weeks after becoming a Christian, I was so in despair because I hadn't been able to hold it together for even two weeks after God had just done this great thing in my life. I was ready to quit. I imagined that God was sitting up there thinking, after all I've done for you, you can't even hold it together for two weeks. You worthless rat. That was what I was telling myself. That is not that is not the reality. The reality is if you're a Christian, you have been set free. And so you go to God with boldness, knowing that he has already set you free. We have an advocate 
as John says in John 1, right after those verses we read a few minutes ago. We have an advocate in Jesus, an advocate who says, this is my child. This is my friend. Remember, God is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations and forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. That's who God is. A God who loves compassionately, who actively and decisively rescues and frees those held in slavery by by the evil, corrupting, enslaving, predatory powers, and who restores us to dignity as his beloved children. So if you're mired and stuck, I'd encourage you to step into the light of God's love. Allow him to set you free and break the shackles of shame and guilt and sin and embrace his way of living. And then as part of his kingdom of priests, because that's who you are, the family of God, you will become part of his rescue mission bringing wise, healing love to the whole rest of creation. And that, folks, is good news. And that is how Jesus, King Jesus, intends to rule the world. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. Well, actually, it won't be next week because it'll be a while now. I'm going to write this book. Um, So we'll see you on the flip side, man. As always, we'd appreciate it if you'd tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, wherever wherever fine podcasts are found. Uh, visit us on our Facebook page for the Jesus Society podcast. Check out our website, thejesussociety.com. Um, I will probably be posting some updates there as to how things are going. Um, you can find us on YouTube, Odyssey. Uh, If you search for the Jesus Society podcast on either of those places, you'll find us. If you would like to support our show, our related ministry, and the work that I'm going to be doing over the next few months writing a book, um, it would would help a lot if you click on the support TJS link on the the Jesus Society website to find out how. And there's links for all this in 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 the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening. Stick around. Um, I will be back. And remember, you are greatly loved.